Hello and welcome to the Granter Podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson and today I'm delighted to be joined by one of Granter's best of young British novelists for Nadifa Mohammed. We talked about her first novel, Black Mamba Boy, which was long-listed for the Orange Prize, shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award and won the Betty Trusk Award, and how the process of writing the book brought her closer to her father on whose life the novel is based. We also talked about arriving from Somalia and growing up in Tooting, and believing from a young age that cats were in fact spies, and how Britain has changed for Somalians. We also discussed her latest novel, The Orchard of Souls, which is extracted in the current issue of the magazine. Nadifa, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Ted. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I just want to start by asking you what it means to be on the list. It's a huge honour. It puts me... Um, it gives me a sense of confidence. I always say that I'm an accidental writer, and um, to even be considered with some of the other people that have gone before me in the grantor lists is incredible. It's a real honour. Well, it must be quite a wonderful accident that you're a writer then, because I just finished reading your, uh, your novel, and um, it seems that you're very much uh, at home with a huge cast of characters and I was just mentioning before we began recording um, these kind of lyrical bursts that really take you by surprise um, when you were growing up uh, did you read a lot of poetry or is, or novels in fact or were you a big reader when you were growing up Cause it seems I was, I was a huge reader when I was little hmm. I read anything and everything I could get my hands on and um, I was the youngest child in a, in a family where actually there's quite big age gaps hmm. so my my parents are much older than usual, and my elder brothers and sisters, there's a 12, 11-year gap. So there's lots of adult material in the house and not much children's material. Mm-hmm. So I would read my dad's uh, Time magazines, any book that came into the house. <laughs> uh, my favourite book when I was younger was actually this first aid guide that I read from cover to cover, and I was planning to become a doctor from what I'd read in this first aid guide. So, yeah, I've always read a lot. Um, in my kind of late teenage years, I got into poetry more. But I'm kind of not very choosy. I'll read anything I can get my hands on. Was there ever um, a hope that you would be a doctor? Or, or was there, did your parents um, get behind you wanting to be a writer? Or were there other paths that were hmm, I wanted to be a doctor till I was probably 16 years old. Mm-hmm. And then realised I was really squeamish. <laughs> unable to cope with blood and things like that so then I went through lots of different other career things that I could do my 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 dad was actually really encouraging when I told him I wanted to write a book about him (laughs) I think that helped a lot if I'd said I wanted to write any other thing maybe he wouldn't be as encouraging but he he loved the idea of me recording his life story Hmm. I think other people in the family thought it was a bit mad and that I should get a proper job but uh, my father was, it was like a collaborative thing between us. So we'd gather in his house and we'd look at maps together and I would record him. and We'd just constantly be in this conversation that we could stop and start at any time about his life and about his experiences. And, you know, he was 50-something when he had me or when he became a parent to me. And um, it got, I actually got to know him from being this very old kind of distant figure he actually became a friend because hmm. the novel even though it is very much a retelling of his life it's also a work of imagination and you 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 do um say that in the sort of afterward and there's a lovely interview with with your father there um 
did that surprise you? Did, I mean, did you you felt that you were sitting down almost to write a to biography? And at you... first, definitely. But at first, it was a biography. Like a sh- I wanted to write maybe twenty pages describing his life, and then I would put it in a box somewhere. And then when my nieces and nephew grew, grew older, they could read it. Mm. It was that simple, that basic. And then the process of writing kind of captured me, and it became longer and longer and longer. And I just wanted to really do something with this incredible story. It was, so, it was you know so unusual that I thought you know if I could. If I could read a book like this, I would be delighted. I'd never read anything like this, about this area, about this kind of person, um, the kind of flotsam and jetsam of life, the people who are left behind by history. Mm. So it became this huge project to me. There's two things there. that I, The first being that it's so interesting that, you, that writing a novel is almost a collaboration or a coming together, a connection with your father, and it slightly cuts against the idea of the novelist taking themselves off on their own and focusing on sort of an inward vision or, or something that's that's going on in them. Um, mm. it, it's an infinitely more social activity in your in your approach to it. Um, and the second thing is history, um, because the novel is so steeped in history. I mean, did you find you were just immersed in research in libraries or was it just being surrounded by the stories of your family that that really got you thinking about writing it, or is it a combination of the two? It was a combination. I think the collaborative aspect of it um, gave me a sense of responsibility. I think one of the things that people find hardest about writing is it's so easy to give up. It's all on you. So if you decide that actually you don't want to do it anymore, you can just walk away. While collaborating with my father gave me a feeling that it wasn't just for me, it was for him as well. It was for the children in the family. And then as the book kind of near the end also to a wider audience who would also be very interested in reading about this especially when you compare it to what's written about Somali already mm-hmm. it's very sparse and it's often written by non-Somalis and can, often can be quite hostile about the country and about the people mm-hmm. so I did feel that a, a greater sense of responsibility um, than probably normal um, and I studied history at university I've always been passionate about it I think literature and history there's a very fine line they're both mm-hmm. about stories History is meant to be more factual stories, while literature can be completely fictional, but there's a very, I think, fine line between them. So I mm. enjoyed going to the libraries, I enjoyed going to the Imperial War Museum, we have these incredible cine films, and looking at rural Eritrea in the 1930s, mm. and knowing that my family were there. Did your father ever read a chapter, or did you read a chapter to him, and did he, did he ever raise an eyebrow and say... Yes. That's kind of interesting, or, you know, did he ever poke fun? <laughs> he read it all, very slowly, after I'd published it, and he wouldn't give me his feedback until he'd finished. Uh, he was like, but I thought it was meant to be about me! <laughs> <laughs> so all of the tiny bits that I I think are tiny, at least, that I elaborated on and, you know, creatively worked upon, he was like, well, this isn't me anymore. <laughs> so he was, he, he liked the writing, he said he's very good writing. <laughs> but he wished it was a greater, closer to a closer account of his own life, even though it's about ninety percent his own life. It sounds like you've created a diva. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have. <laughs> he now wants someone else to write just a biography <laughs> on him. He's not satisfied yet. Um, then there'll be the real biography, and yeah. the official biography, <laughs> the uncensored version and the Hollywoody version. Um, I, I'm thinking of that extraordinary story of his, not his, I suppose you'd say his um, 
before his birth when he's in his his mother's womb and there's this this mythic scene where a black member snakes down from a tree and 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 wraps itself coils itself around her belly and um and this is the moment when um his mother knows that he's going to have an extraordinary life um I wonder if that happened, but also, even if it did or it didn't, there is a really strong mythic quality to all of the whole novel, the sense of a hero um, fighting against the odds in a sort of odyssey and trying to trying to regain his father, trying to regain his roots. Mm. Um, is myth important to you? Did you find yourself um, writing that and thinking, wow, I'm writing a myth here, or it sounds like... I it think just as the way my father recounted it, it sounded like a myth. Mm. You know, well, the most obvious things were the Greek myths. And um, he was, or like uh, A Thousand and One Nights, mm-hmm. the scene with the snake and my grandmother, that really did happen. And mm. she really did perceive it in that way. And there's actually a bit more to it where later on I found out that she went back and told her husband, who's also like a 17, 18-year-old, and said to him what happened about with the snake. And he was said, oh, I know what it is. It's it's the visitation of my father, um, who's come to bless this child, and then he sacrificed the chicken, I think, in honour. So this was their world, you know. It, this was the way they saw things. This is the way they interpreted their lives, the experiences they had, and that's changed. I think Somalis and most people they don't see life like that anymore. Mm. I think our lives are safer. They're kind of more sedate, so we have less need of myths. Mm. But I love them. I think that's great. And I think it did ha- it did have a real effect on his life because there wasn't room for despair. His mother had created mm. this narrative for him that he had to fulfil, and that kept him going. Mm. So something very kind of, almost like a you know, very romantic idea had a, a real effect on his life. Yes. And it kind of, it raises the question of fate and, and character then as well. I, one of the my favourite lines from the novel... Um, only later in life do we see the tugs of fate with clear eyes, the minute delays that lead to terrible loss, the unconscious choices that make our lives worth living. That idea of um, the tugs of fate being um, imperceptible to us in the moment and then in, in longer, with a longer view back on ourselves, we can s- sort of perceive an epic narrative. And in your father's case, he really had one. Yes. Yeah, I think he's 80, 88 now, so he can see his life. He can see the narrative of his life fully, mm. and there are these weird coincidences that have kept him going. And you know, why him and not someone else? And mm. all of these questions really are quite important for him and fresh. Mm. You know, these are fresh things for him to think about. Why did I end up here? And you know, so and so who had all of these other qualities didn't. Mm. And I really feel like. As his daughter, he wasn't meant to end up with a happy story. Mm. As a street boy, you know, six years old, sleeping rough on a roof in Aden, he wasn't meant to have a comfortable life in southwest London, <laughs> mm. you know, 80 years later. So it makes you really think, because I think the the arc of his life has been so broad and so, you know, from one continent to another, mm. one, one, one era to another, you know... The, his life when he was born was unchanged like the family he was born into their lifestyle hadn't changed for centuries and for you that must have been having that arc in your life as well mm-hmm. um must have been a very um rich and possibly at times difficult thing to reconcile because mm-hmm. you've written a wonderful piece for the website um about this sort of 
dual heritage that you you have and there's a lovely phrase in it that you you felt english by osmosis mm-hmm. um and the the shift from those family stories to you know Roald Dahl and the top of the pops and mm-hmm. those things that are such a staple in in a lot of english childhoods um when you look back on your childhood and when you're um thinking about it now and writing about it now how do you how how Somalian do you feel and how do you reconcile those things or does it is that just an enhancement of life that you have those two points think, of reference I think the book really helped me understand it I think the book I learned so much more about my family mm. about Somalia about um you know my grandmother she's she was completely independent and quite a you know Uh, she was a powerful woman <laughs> and you're you have that example but then often you're told that muslim women are like this and somali women are sort of horribly oppressed and it, once you you see the individuals and then you work out different aspects of yourself so it allows you na- to navigate who you are a bit better i think and it, as a child you, you just submerge you're submerged into a new culture you have to sink or swim so you you swim and it wasn't horribly hard uh, you know you have somali food at home and then you have english food at school and these are things that you, but then i remember being very aw- awkward and you know at at school lunches because i didn't know what was pork and i knew i couldn't eat pork and mm. pork would be hidden <laughs> like in ravioli or something so then you'd have to people wouldn't understand why you care so much mm-hmm, and why you're asking all the time so there are small things like that but it's only as i got older and you know maybe you know early 20s that i really started to think wow i know so much about england and about english history and things and i don't feel like i know that much about my my other history hmm. and there was a definite kind of feeling of oh i don't know where i belong now hmm. i hadn't been to somalia since 86 and it was it was this distant place that you saw on tv or sometimes on videos kind of smuggled in from different places and you know it was just it, all you saw were images of hardship and dislocation and that's hard to attach yourself to mm-hmm. so i needed to branch out i needed to see a different side of the place and of the people as well you probably weren't checking for horse meat in the school <laughs> well, they... i should have been <laughs> but i wasn't but, um do you feel that the perception of somalia has been um that the way it's represented in the media because of course it would make you conscious of how it's represented it's terrible but do you think it's improved uh in the last year or so <laughs> <laughs> yes i think it's very sad because the region of somalia that i'm from somaliland has actually been doing quite well for the mm. last t- almost 20 years um and it's completely ignored mm. <laughs> so you know, as with all things if there's good news it's no news or mm. bad news often you know that will reach a wider audience so it felt sad knowing that the good things that were happening in somaliland were being ignored and the very terrible things that have been happening in somalia have been have been the representation of somalia mm. generally as a whole region mm. so there was yeah i did have a sense of <clears throat> if, if i if i tutor children if i teach children somali children as i did in this mentoring scheme what do i have to tell them that's good about their origin mm. or about their family's origin you need something to hold on to you need something positive Um I want to talk a little bit about tooting because I know that that was one of the places that you spent a lot of time and I wanted to talk a little bit about your cat as well because <laughs> there was um you mentioned in the piece that there's a cat who um is 
he's sort of like a bit of a sentinel like he, he's an out, outlier mm. but um, there's a wonderful phrase in the piece we talk about perceived threats and things like the electricity lines crisscrossed um, over the road and that mm. um, you know gas cookers um, sort of wheezing and yeah. all of that English um, grimness really <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, forbiddingness and yeah. and it, you would perceive threats in it I perceive threats in it but um, <laughs> the how do you um, uh, tell me a little bit about that period of time? Do you know what's really shocking is that when I think back to the memories I have of being under ten years old, I have maybe five, five to ten memories, nearly one for every year, and that's rubbish. What happened <laughs> to those ten years? <laughs> so I remember that cat really vividly, and smells. I've got I've got a really strong sense of smell, so smells bring back memories. Mm. And there was a place I went to in Wales recently that had that same gas smell seeping mm. from the walls, and that took me back to the to the late eighties. It's like Proust, <laughs> but horrible. Yeah. <laughs> so the cat, like, again, it's, it's family myth mixed in with real vague memories and um, things that you read later on. Mm. So I remember that cat. There's no two ways about that. But um, I don't know if my brother was pulling my leg when he said he also thought it was a spy or if it was something like a family madness thing that we all believed it. Um, and it's really when you look at what happened in Somalia or what Somalia was like in the 1980s under the police dictatorship it makes absolute perfect sense that we were that paranoid mm. um, it was a place where my mother would have to hide my brother from the police or the, the, the army so that he wasn't conscripted into the army um, you, at night you didn't feel safe because the police or anyone could come in and take people away or take your possessions away it, and there was no light. You know, the government had shut down all the street lights, and um, that, there was barely any electricity. So there's this there's this darkness, mm. and in that darkness, of course, all your fears arise. So we brought those fears to England, and England in the winter where we arrived, you know, it's completely dark for most of the day. Mm. It's it can be lonely. It's so cold. Um, it can be quite hostile. So, um, you know, a child's imagination or children's imagination can latch on to things. And um, in Somalia, I always wanted a cat. It was one of the things. My brother would catch me kittens and then have to send them away when my mum said he had to get rid of them mm. and put baby birds in his pocket for me when he got home. And um, I probably wanted that cat, but then I was scared of it at the same time. Mm. And we didn't know what was... Everything was so different here that we didn't know if the cats could speak English. <laughs> if they would report on us to their owners <laughs> so everything nothing was off the table <laughs> it's a terrifying thought it is terrible it's horrible don't speak to cats exactly <laughs> so we were on edge we didn't know if we were going to be deported we didn't know what it could do to mm. us could we be put in jail if they if they saw us doing something wrong and then English schools as well, like the Victor old Victorian ones, like the one I went to mm. they're terrifying, they're yes. like work camps <laughs> so I was separated from my mother for the first time, put in this in this place, <clears throat> this freezing cold place with strangers, told to stay there for six, seven hours a day. God, it's Jane Eyre. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it is, I mean, that's, that, that's the experience. Yeah, it's, it's terrifying. It's really interesting that um, you mentioned that, that historical weight, the, the, the paranoia that, that came across with you, because... Um, in the piece, you talk about how there was a point for a lot of Somalians in 
larger communities in northern cities of, of uh, northern and probably London as well, mm. where there was a significant number of uh, people there from Somalia who, it, I think you say that it didn't become necessary for people to write down each other's addresses because it wasn't as novel, it wasn't as strange to meet a Somalian in England anymore. And yeah. it, there was a sort of tipping point when that happened. Yes. And did that sense of solidarity or, or at least numbers bring um a sense of of safety away from the that that kind of paranoia or yes yeah definitely i don't feel paranoid anymore mm. i think being here for so long that's dissipated and england has changed so much mm. my dad's constantly saying it but it has changed so much in the little place i live you know before you know you'd be lucky you couldn't get any, you couldn't get, you couldn't get a plantain or anything like that. Mm. And now there's a Polish shop, there's a kind of Lebanese shop. All of these things kind of have mm-hmm. broadened life for, for migrants particularly, but also for English people. Um, and the fact that I can hear Somali now, and I, I just tune it out, it's nothing special at all. Mm. You'll see, you'll hear it on the bus, I'll just walk past someone and there's no exchange. We don't acknowledge each other really. And that's strange because, as I said in the early 90s, you would stop. If you were on a bus, you would get off the bus and run off and run to the person. They would stop (laughs) and you'd exchange details and, you know, have a 10, 15 minute conversation there. But then there's also that shared sense of responsibility and perhaps responsibility that you feel to bring light to, as you mentioned, this, these kinds of persecutions and um, tyrannies that, Mm. that people had to live through in yeah. the 80s and the 70s and then we don't Somalis don't really talk about them uh, there's a mm. few really interesting books um, by Somali authors but as a as a community we've just left it behind us mm-hmm. we've run away and left it behind and that's kind of helped in some ways because you know there's there's not a horrible amount of tension between Somali groups here but you do get the feeling that there's a lot of rawness just under the surface I sometimes will have a conversation with someone and they'll just say to me, they'll find out I'm a writer, then their eyes will widen and, you know, something really, a profound experience that they had during the war will kind of take over, you know, their, mm-hmm. their expression and they'll describe it to me in this in this incredible detail. And you know, you know that that's just always just brimming, just there. Mm-hmm. And yet there's not many outlets to talk about it. Mm. So, you know, it's, I, I, I love talking to people about it and I always, often feel like I'm kind of, you know, trawling through people's minds and stuff, and it doesn't feel that great, but it's so important, you know, it's so important to record these experiences and not to have a biased sense of, well, I suffered and, you know, everyone else's experiences are not as valuable as mine. Everyone's experiences is, are really fascinating, actually. Whatever mm. aspect of the war they saw is fascinating. Mm. Um, so I really hope that there is actually more discussion and more more art coming out of it. Um to what extent do you feel you are both writing for Somalians in Somalia and to what extent do you feel you're writing for everyone? I mean, do you do you ever feel like you're addressing Somalia sometimes in your work or are you addressing... Um, well, I think I, I write for myself. I write mm. to make sure that I'm happy with it. Mm. But uh, I've got a close relationship to the Somali community both here mm-hmm. and also around the world. I speak to, you know, I have in different ways I've got different relationships with people in Canada and the US and also in Somaliland I go to the Somaliland book fair every other year normally so maybe every year now and um, 
it's important to me. It's really important to me to have that ability to 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 talk and to to find out more, to learn more, and um, just to talk about the things that I find important. But um, in a in a kind of condition, a situation which is completely new to me. So book festival, the book festival in Hargeisa is um, huge. It attracts thousands thousands of people, and lots of young people turn up, and you know the guys organizing it have this amazing idea you know they they want to bring the rest of the world to somalia or to mm. somaliland so they're translating um chekhov and doing these amazing things yeah so i would f- hate to feel like my work didn't speak to somalis or they didn't get it or they didn't find it accurate in some way mm. there has it has to i think it has to be open to them that's a big part of mm. the reason i write um Am I right in thinking you're doing some film projects there at the moment? Is that? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because that sounds very interesting. Yeah, I've been working for a film production company for the last year um, or so, and we've just finished a documentary series called Return to Somalia, mm-hmm. which followed young Somalis going to Mogadishu. For the case of one girl, it's her, the first time. She was born in Washington, D.C., so it's her first time in Mogadishu. And the two other guys we followed, they live in London but were born in Somalia. And they're both going there, both groups going there to do incredible things. One, the girl sets up a school, mm. and the guy set up a, an organisation which is very Gandhian in its aims. It wants to abolish tribal discrimination in Somalia and the world. <laughs> so, wow. so they're setting up their office in Mogadishu to start the work there. Um, so yeah, Mogadishu's changed a lot in the last year. Um, people are returning in big numbers, bu- um, houses being re- rebuilt, businesses are reopening. And there's this excitement there that I hope the documentary is captured. Fantastic. Well, wh- where can we see that? When will that be? We're looking for distribution now, um, so it'll be out within the next few months. Great. And I just want to ask you um, quickly about your piece in the issue. Uh, Phil San, to me, seems like she's an ancestor of Jama in Black Mamba Boy in her um, in the mythic proportions of her story it seems to be that she's there's going to be a lot that's happened that happens to her and she seems in some way sort of chosen to have um a particularly um epic fate um it's an extraordinarily dramatic scene with the gun the rifle going off and and this violent sort of scrum ensuing and um and i just wondered what what shape the rest of the story will take the novel will take mm. and also when it will when I can read the rest of it. <laughs> the novel is due out in August. It's called uh, The Orchard of Lost Souls. It's set in Somalia during the 1980s, in that cusp from when it went from a kind of dictatorship, a police state, into full-out war. And um, it's a period of time which is relevant to me and my family. We left just in 86, and then the war broke out in 88. So my grandmother, my uncles, my aunties, my cousins were all left behind. So I've always been fascinated and I, um, you know, discussed different aspects of that time with my family members who were there. And I really wanted to write one about an old woman left abandoned in her bed as the war raged around her. Number two, about a little girl who was like a Goldilocks figure. 
Mm. breaking into different homes and eating their food and sleeping in their beds. <laughs> mm. So I managed to do both of those. Um, those other, those two other characters are in the book. And then this other character emerged, Filson, who is a soldier, a female soldier, very well educated. She's taken advantage of all of the different opportunities the government brought to women at that time. You know, they changed the law, changed some of the customs so that women could take a fuller role in society. But there's been a huge cost to her. Um, she's kind of a bit myopic about what the government is actually doing and she ends up feeling guilt huge mm. guilt and it's a guilt that emerges from her own background her own upbringing but also what she's engaged in as a soldier so she's an unusual character um, for me she's um, quite well off she's got lots of opportunities but somehow like the other characters she's isolated and she's on the fringes of society. There's a moment in the piece where it seems that she might be implicated in smuggling, or she thinks she might be implicated in yes. smuggling. Um, and you mentioned her uh, myopia, or her sense of being a little blinkered about what's going on around her, and she feels horrible shame of what her father might make mm. of that. Yes. Um, she's an idealist. Mm. You know, the government or the dictatorship started off with you know, ideals of equality and um, self-help for the nation after the mm. colonial period, so people do things for themselves. You know, these quite admirable um, policies. Mm. So she she believes in that. She's absorbed those beliefs and those um, kind of that propaganda. And she, in her own mind, wants to live an ethical life, but that's becoming impossible in the situation she's in. Mm. It's so interesting that the three characters you mentioned, the principal characters in this book, um, I love the Goldilocks thread. I can't wait to read that. Um, are women um, mm. because Black Mamba Boy was pretty much all men. Was pretty much all men, and yeah. um, was that a deliberate thing? And yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to write Jama in Black Mamba Boy so mobile, and it's such a male world. I wanted to do the opposite, like not even mm. on a, in a conscious level. I just just had a, an inkling, a desire mm. that that's where I should be now. So, yeah, I wanted to actually have a, ca a book where no male character speaks. But that's impossible. <laughs> you know, in, in Lawrence of Arabia, there's female, uh, none of the female roles are speaking roles. They're just in the background. God. So I wanted to see if I could do that with men, and you can't. <laughs> they always have an opportunity or the, a reason to speak. Can't so. they hold up cards or something? <laughs> <laughs> it's too difficult. So uh, I wanted to concentrate on the women, absolutely. Mm. And uh, is there a sense of wanting to get it right? I mean, of course, there always is, I suppose. But when you're... I suppose if you're writing... You, you write so convincingly from a male perspective. Uh, and did you feel like, oh, you know, this is my... This is this is going to be even easier? Or did you... Or was there a kind of... I think with uh, Black Mamba Boy, because it was my father. And, of course, you, you are part of your parents you know your own personality is formed by them mm. so the, the space between him and me is not such a wide gap right. you know it's easy to, to to jump over and become him in a way mm. um, and these these were strangers mm. so um, it wasn't much easier actually I think it was harder I think this book was much harder to write mm. um, well I can't wait to read it and um, thank you so much for joining me today and congratulations on being on the list thank you Thanks for listening to the Granter Podcast. 
available for free download on iTunes, SoundCloud and on selected British Airways flights. To subscribe to Granta, please visit our website, granta.com forward slash subscribe.